All right, we are in the midst of a discussion about God. And not just any old God, but the God who has made himself known in the scriptures. The God who has revealed himself as the triune God, Father and Son and Spirit. We are working, of course, through the 1689 Confession, and we have spent a little time in the chapter on that particular subject, but as you recall, the chapter is relatively short in terms of what is contained about the nature of God and the confession that we have adopted as our own here at Grace Fellowship does a significant uh, uh, more detail, gives a significantly more detailed examination of the Trinitarian nature of God. Now many of the things we're talking about in this discussion will appear again in other parts of the 1689, but it seemed reasonable to me that it would be a good time for us to stop and consider the nature of God as we have confessed it in our confession and to, uh, to make sure that we are thoroughly Trinitarian in our understanding of God. Because the God who's revealed himself in the Bible is not just some generic God. He is the one who's made himself known as Father and Son and Spirit. Three distinct persons bearing each one nature, one eternal nature the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So we've looked now at the nature of the Father. We talked about His nature. We've talked about the nature of the Son, which you remember was a a lengthy examination in this confession because uh, in many ways you could argue that the Son is the primary focus of Scripture, uh, both Old and New Testament. But now we come to the third person of the Trinity, uh, God the Holy Spirit. And... um, I don't know if the following statement is true or not, but uh, based on my own anecdotal examination of it, I think it is, and that is I think that of the three persons of the Trinity, the one least understood properly is the third person of the Trinity. And uh, I think that the reason why that is very often the case is ironically because the Spirit does not draw attention to himself, because his purpose is to push our attention to the second person of the Trinity, who is the Son. Uh, I think that there is, in some quarters in Christendom today, an unhealthy focus on the third person of the Trinity, one that he would not want for himself. And I think there's, in other quarters of evangelicalism, a sense of misunderstanding about who the Spirit is. And so it's appropriate that we should do a little pneumatology tonight. The word pneuma is the Greek word for spirit or wind. Uh, and so pneumatology would be the discussion of the spirit, just as the discussion of the nature of Jesus is Christology, and a discussion of the Father is called theology proper. Uh, this would be pneumatology. Okay, All right, so here's what we write in our confession under uh, the subhead of God and the, 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 the head God, subhead God the Holy Spirit. We write the following paragraph, or we have written. We teach that the Holy Spirit is a divine person, eternal, underived, possessing all the attributes of personality and deity, including intellect, emotions, will, eternality, omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence, and truthfulness. Now, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Okay, Lots of different adjectives being used to describe the Spirit, but let's start with the one right at the beginning. We believe and we teach that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is a person. 
Right? I think this is one of the reasons why this starts this way is because there is a tremendous amount of misinformation about the Spirit of God. And one of the most common errors that people make in regards to the Spirit is to refer to him as an it rather than a person. To him as a force or as some sort of manifestation of the power of God. But Trinitarian theology, Nicene Trinitarian theology, argues that the Holy Spirit of God is revealed in Scripture is a divine person. He is a person with all of the attributes of personhood, which is why we listed them. Intellect, emotion, will. Those things are personal traits. The Spirit of God possesses intellect. He thinks. He has the ability to think as a person does. He has will, which means he has volition or the ability to choose, to make decisions. And he has emotion. He responds to things emotionally. Now, we had some discussion earlier about emotion in terms of the relationship to God. But if you're going to, if you're going to be honest about a person, you recognize that persons possess these things. These are the things that define personhood. This is what makes personhood. So we, we are teaching that the Holy Spirit of God is a divine person, one of the three persons of the Trinity. And he is eternal, meaning that he has always been. There's never been a time when the Father was without the Spirit. There's never been a time when the Spirit was without the Father and so forth. He is eternal. He has existed for all of eternity as a part of the Godhead. And he is underived. All right, and that's a key word because it means that we teach that the Spirit of God is not simply the representation of one of the other persons of the Trinity. Okay? We are not modalists. All right? We believe that God is three distinct persons and that the Spirit of God is not derived from the other persons. He doesn't come out of or is simply another way that the Father expresses himself. He is a unique spirit unto himself. He's a unique person, I should say, unto himself. And he possesses all of the attributes of personality and all of the attributes of deity. So not only does he have intellect, emotion, and will, but he also has eternality, okay, which means not just that he's eternal, but that he acts in all of, t- all of eternity. Okay? So he's, he has eternality. He has omnipresence, meaning he is everywhere. Okay? He is omnipresent, all present. He is omniscient, meaning he knows all there is to know. He is omnipotent. He possesses the full power of God, which is unlimited power of God. And he is not only possesses those attributes, but he also possesses one that is spoken of in John 16, 13, about him also being the person of truthfulness possesses the nature of truth. It's interesting, isn't it, that he's called the spirit of truth by Jesus himself. He's referred to as the spirit who will come and bring all truth to you. So he is the, he is the possessor of that which he gives. So he is truth. Now, that doesn't mean that the Father and the Son are not filled with truth, of course. Jesus himself, as I am the way and the truth and the life. Right? Okay, but the Spirit of God is the one that is sent into the world by the Father and the Son, and we do believe it's both the Father and the Son that have sent the Spirit, unlike Eastern Orthodoxy, which teaches it's only the Father that sends him. We believe that it's the Father and the Son that sends him into the world in order to, to continue the work of truth that began in Christ and now gets applied into the realities of human beings. So he is the bringer of truth. 
Now, we'll talk more about that uh, in a later paragraph. But he possesses the nature of truthfulness. It's not just that he has truth. He is truth and the full bearer of that to humanity. In all the divine attributes, he is co-equal and consubstantial with the Father and the Son. As the third person, he is utterly equal to the Father and to the Son. The Son is not greater than him. The Father is not greater than him. He is equal to the Father in every sense. And he is consubstantial, and that word means he possesses the fullness of the nature of the Father and the Son. The third person of the Trinity contains the fullness of Yahweh. All of what makes up the divine nature is present in the Spirit, just as it was present in the Son and just as it is present in the Father. The Spirit of God possesses the fullness of the nature of the Godhead. Okay. Now, if you, if you just stop there and think about it for a second, it's interesting, isn't it, that so much of the discussions around the Spirit of God seem to minimize much of this discussion. It's almost as though, well, he just kind of comes and does his thing as the power of God and we just sort of ignore him or we just we don't give him much attention and and so it's sort of like he's just uh, there but a, a trinitarian orthodox understanding i would say a nicene trinitarian orthodox understanding of the godhead is such that the spirit of god the third person of the trinity is every much is every bit as important as the son or the father in every sense of the word we need to keep that clear if we're going to be trinitarian right because you're not Trinitarian if you don't make the Spirit of God fully equal and consubstantial with the Father and the Son. You become somewhat of a di, um, what's, by, um, by Arian. That's not the word. By, there's a word. I can't think of it. Okay, two people instead of three people. A Trinitarian is three people. A Bitarian is two people. Okay, no, we don't. We believe it's three people, three persons, I should say, three persons bearing the fullness of of the nature of the Godhead. Okay? Next, we teach that the work of the Holy Spirit, that it is the work of the Holy Spirit, to execute the divine will with relation to all mankind. We put the responsibility for the work of God in relationship to all mankind in the Spirit. It is he who comes to execute the divine decree. Now, that doesn't mean that the, that the Son doesn't also come to do the work of the Father. But there is much to be said here about the Spirit's work in taking all of what God has purposed from his decree into humanity. Jesus Christ came to produce redemption. He came to create redemption, to make atonement, to provide propitiation, all these sorts of things. But it's the third person of the Trinity who takes all of that and brings it to humanity. Jesus had 12 disciples and a few hundred other followers that went with him. But the Spirit of God goes to and fro throughout the whole world to every person that he has sent by the Father. And so he is bringing the divine decree to all men. And I would argue that this isn't just New Testament thinking, it's Old Testament as well. The Spirit of the living God, the third person of the Trinity, is the one who is taking the divine will of God and bringing it into reality in human beings. Now, there's a lot of ways that that happens. We'll talk more about that as we go along. Okay? So he is the one to execute the divine will with relation to all mankind. We recognize his sovereign activity 
in several different areas. Number one, he is sovereign in creation. It is the Spirit of God who is spoken of right there at the very beginning of the book of Genesis where he is said to be hovering over the waters. He is there as a part of the Godhead working in creation. Now, we also know the Son was at work in creation. The Son was also, as a part of the Trinity, carrying out the work and decree of the Father to create, right? Through him all things were made, right? Okay. But the Spirit of God is also there. He is consubstantial with the Father in terms of creation, consubstantial with the Son in terms of the work of creation. So the Spirit of God is involved in creation, Secondly, the Spirit of God is involved in the Incarnation. It is the Spirit of God that comes upon the Virgin to bring the nature of the second person into the womb of the Virgin. It is the Spirit of God who brings that forward. And it's also the Spirit's work to bring the written revelation. The written revelation, meaning the Scriptures. All Scripture is... Theanoustos, breathed out by God. And that noustos on the end of that, that's the same word as pneuma. Breathed out by the Spirit. It is a word breathed out by the Spirit. It is breathed out by the Holy Spirit of God. It is the Holy Spirit who came upon men and brought them through their circumstances in such a way that when they took up paper and pen, they wrote the very words of God. It was His super inspiration over them, His super intention of their lives, which brought them to that place. It's his work. He is the one who has accomplished that. And it is the Spirit who brings about the work of salvation. John 3, the Spirit blows where he wills, but it is the Spirit of God who brings the new nature. It is he who brings the new birth. It is he who brings regeneration and conversion and faith and repentance and all the other aspects. It is his work. As I said earlier, it's the work of the Spirit to bring the divine will of God as it is completed in Christ to you and me. He does it. Now, sometimes we call it the Spirit of Christ because it's a part of the nature of the Godhead in which it's very hard to distinguish where they one leaves off and the other begins, right? I mean, we try to separate those things, but if we're being honest, we recognize it's a, a work of, the, uh, of God, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit all the way through. But if we break it out a little bit and we stop and look at what Scripture says, what it says is it po- appoints the responsibility for bringing this work of Christ to the elect. It's He who does that. It's the Spirit of God who comes and opens hearts. It's the Spirit of God who brings faith and repentance into the life of a man. So he is the one who is sovereignly involved in creation, the incarnation, the written revelation, and the work of salvation. Or more specifically, I would say the application of salvation in the lives of men. Okay? You with me so far? Any questions? No? Haven't overrun your headlights yet? All right. I'm sorry. Question? No? Okay. We teach that the work of the Holy Spirit in this age began at Pentecost when he came from the Father as promised by Christ to initiate and complete the building of the body of Christ, that in uppercase, which is his church. So we teach that in the new age, in the church age, that that age began at Pentecost when the Spirit of God fell upon those disciples, and they came out preaching. 
They came out preaching. And they came out to bring about the church. The Spirit of God fell upon those disciples, and they began this work of building what is called what we call the body of Christ. And you notice it's an uppercase. It's body and uppercase, Christ and uppercase. Body of Christ, because it's a it is a it is an, an edifice building uh, rising up uh, with him, Jesus, as the cornerstone of the building. He is the foundation of it. The cornerstone is the foundation. It's the corner rock that holds up the rest of it. So he is the cornerstone. And being built up on top of it, then, are all those drawn by the Spirit of God into relationship to Christ, and they're being added to this body. So one of the imageries that's painted of that is this picture of a temple rising up. The temple's being made out of living stones, where you and I as believers are part of the stones. We are, we are a part of this new temple being built up, where God himself resides, and where worship of this God occurs. Okay, so it's it's metaphorical, but yet it has real symbolism. If you look at it, you think about it, yes, we're all part of a great temple worshiping God. No matter where you are, whether you're, whether you're in Kenya or whether you're in China or whether you're in Europe or America, it doesn't matter if you're a believer, if you're a regenerate, you're part of this body. You're part of this temple. The other imagery that's used is an imagery of a body, as you know, like this one, right? Where we are all parts of that body in different aspects. He is the head, Christ is the head, and we are the rest of the parts. Some parts more uh, lovely and presentable than others, but nonetheless, we're all parts of it, right? right? Some of us are big toes, and others of us are index fingers, and some of us are ears, and some of us are eyes, and so it goes, right? But it's all metaphorical. It's a picture. It's an image. We are his body. We are, we are part of this larger organism that all fits together, stays together, and it's the Spirit of God who forms this. It is the Spirit of God who goes out into the world and finds all of the elect that are written in the Lamb's Book of Life and puts them in this body by drawing them to Christ by faith, giving them the new heart, and then leading them to the cross where they trust in Christ, become a part of this body. So it's the Spirit who is building this thing. And another imagery, of course, that's used in the New Testament is the church. The ecclesia, the, the gathered out ones is the way that's put. A typical town in first century, uh, the first century world would have an ecclesia. It wasn't a church. But it was a gathering of the local leaders of the town that would come down to the center square in the town and they would meet together for the purpose of discussing the needs of the city and what needed to be done. Today we'd call it maybe a city council or something to that effect, right? It, was, it, it typically met at the Bema seat, often for the purpose of judging uh, people who were accused of a crime. That was an ecclesia. What the apostles did is they took that word and they used it for this new thing because it fit the imagery perfectly. Special ones called out to gather together. It's the exact same idea. Gathered out of the world. So they took this word ecclesia and they used it to describe this thing called the church. You are all part of a gathered body. You're called out of the world by the Spirit into this thing called the ecclesia, the gathering. One of the reasons, by the way, why you have to insist to Christians that they gather with other Christians. Because by definition, to be included in the ecclesia, you are gathered. That's the whole point of the word. Okay, So 
it is the Spirit of God that is building this body, this temple, uh, this ecclesia, and he's doing so uh, starting at Pentecost. He's building his church. He initiated it, and he's completing the building of it, which is his church. The broad scope of his divine activity includes, all right, here's some of the things the Spirit of God does. Number one, he convicts of sin. How do you know you're a sinner? Because the Spirit of God convicts you of it. The word convicting doesn't mean something effective as, oh, I'm a sinner. No. Conviction is, I'm guilty, and I know I am. That's To be convicted in a court of law is to be declared guilty. So if you're convicted of something, it's making you recognize your guilt over something. So convicting is more than just revealing. Convicting is the whole sense in which a person is shown that they are sinful. Now, the Spirit of God convicts believers, of course, to come to a fullness of understanding their guilt, so they go and throw themselves at the foot of the cross and beg for mercy. But he also does that with the world, too. He is going and he convicts the world of sin. He shows that the world has fallen short of the law of God. Now, the reprobate, what do they do? I don't care. But it is that work of the Spirit in a general conviction over the world that leads Paul to say things like he does in Romans 1, that they know there is a God, and they know that God has established a law. How do they know that? The Spirit of the living God, going to and fro throughout the earth, has made all men everywhere know that there is a law to be followed. Now, again, only the regenerate man can actually step up and love that law because the regenerate won't, won't by virtue of their nature. But it is the Spirit who is doing that. He is convicting, in a specific sense, a salvific sense, the elect, and he is convicting, in a more general sense, those who are uh, reprobate. Okay? So he is convicting the world of sin. He's also convicting of righteousness. Now, I think the way that phrase is written, I think what it means is convicting the world of sin, convicting the world of righteousness. It's convicting in the opposite sense, because there is also a conviction of righteousness. Because we not only have to be convicted of sin, but we also have to be convicted that there is righteousness, and we must pursue it. And that that righteousness is a righteousness from God and not from us. It is a righteousness that's inherent within him. That's a part of the convicting work of the Spirit that belongs to regeneration. And I would suggest to you that that's also true amongst the reprobate. The reprobate know that it is wrong to worship idols, because they know that they should be worshiping the living God. So it goes both ways. If he's convicting of unrighteousness, he's also convicting of righteousness by implication. So the Spirit of God is going to and fro throughout the earth, and he is convicting all men in both unrighteousness and righteousness. But for the elect, he is convicting them to, of unrighteousness and righteousness to accomplish something. All right, so it works in them in that this is not just a conviction of, oh yeah, I guess I'm a sinner, okay, whatever. No, it's something that's actually producing a result. And he's also convicting the world of judgment. Again, both sides, the regenerate and the unregenerate. The regenerate are being convicted of judgment, but what they are knowing, what they are what they're come to know is that the judgment that they rightly deserve has fallen on Christ. It's been taken by him. So he can the, the world, the spirit convicts the the, the righteous, the, the elect that Christ has taken their judgment. But he also convicts the rest of the world that there is judgment coming. Men know that there is a day coming. I mean, we're told in the gospel accounts, it'd be better if you weren't alive that day, okay? 
So just run and hide under a mountain somewhere. But, of course, men cannot flee from the righteousness of God. They cannot flee from the judgment of Christ. And so he convicts the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. He also, the broad scope of his divine activity also includes glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ and transforming believers into the image of Christ. Now, I think that phrase is, when it says glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ, is pointing men to him. Pointing men to him. I'm going to give um, a, a Mark Jarvis definition of glorify here. Okay, And we talk about glorifying something. God is glorified in what we do when we eat and drink. We do it all to the glory of God, right? What does that mean? What does the word glorifying mean? Now, here's, what I, here's, what I'm, here's, what, here's my definition of it. It is, to me, quite literally, to draw all attention of all creatures to God. To point all of our noses to Him. All of our hearts to him, all of our minds to him, all of our eyes to him, everything about us to him. That's to give glory to God. To give glory to God is to put it, to put all mankind facing God and seeing him for who he is. The Spirit of God glorifies, the Spirit of God glorifies the Lord Jesus Christ by turning our attention to Christ. The Spirit of God isn't interested in drawing attention to himself. As I said earlier, one of the problems that we have with uh, theology very often is we, we get the spirit wrong because he doesn't draw attention to himself. And I think it would be a fair argument to say that he doesn't want any attention drawn to himself. He wants the attention drawn to the second person of the Trinity. So he turns our attention away from the spirit himself to Christ. And so in some ways, it's kind of like, okay, we don't really know who the Spirit is because he's never talking about himself. He's always talking about Christ. But that's exactly the point. He wants Christ to be glorified because it is Jesus who has been given the name above every name. It's Jesus that has been established on the throne of heaven. It's Jesus that began the authority over all the earth. The Spirit of God does the work of simply taking the elect and turning their attention. It's almost like they, he grabs our head and he says, see, look, there's Jesus, see? Stop looking around. Look up there. That's what he's doing. He's glorifying Jesus Christ by pointing to him. And so let's make, let's make a, a connection here. If the spirit of the living God is building the church, if that's his job to build the church, and his actions are always to point to Christ, what should be the primary focus of the church? Jesus Christ. If he's building it, and his work is to point all men to Christ, then by definition, that body, that temple, that church is all about him. It's all about Jesus Christ. You can never have enough focus on Christ in the church. Okay? You can never have enough focus on Christ in the church. We cannot cannot overdo our worship, our love of, our obedience, our submission or whatever, any word you want to use there, to Christ. We can't overdo it. You simply can't. Because the work of the Spirit is to point us to Him. Because He's the one that saves us, He's the one that redeems us and, and sanctifies us, and He's the one that glorifies us, and He's the one that judges all men, and He's the one whose kingdom is being established, and He's the one that God, the Father, has said, this is my beloved Son, listen to Him. It's about Him. Okay? 
I, 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 I've, this is just anecdotal, but I've been in enough churches in my life to know and to see how very little Christ is magnified in the church. It's never about him. It's always about whom? Walk in the church, who's it about? Ourselves. The focus is always on me. In fact, I think in most evangelical churches, you could take the pulpit out and just put a big mirror here. And so we'd be, we're just like parakeets. You know, you, know, you, know, you, put, you know why they put mirrors in parakeet cages, right? Because they need to see it themselves. They think there's another parakeet in there. Well, that's what we do. We're just like parakeets. We sit there and stare at ourselves. No, church is about him. That's the Spirit's work. Spirits turn our attention to Christ. The Spirit of God is going to constantly be lifting your chin up from the ground to look up and see Christ. Stop looking down. Look up at him. Okay? So, that's, I'm sorry. Comment? Oh, I got an amen. Okay, thank you. All right. That's so rare. I didn't know what to do with it. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Correct. Because he's going to fill us up with. Right. That's what a spirit filled church is. Correct. Thank you for pointing that out. That is an excellent point. Okay. So he is not only, he is not only glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ, but he's transforming believers into the image of Christ. So if the object of our worship is Christ. What is the goal of our worship? Him. It's the same thing. Our purpose is to worship Him so that we become like Him. One of the very first verses that I ever learned in the Bible, and it's a translation that the guy that preached it used, I think he made the translation up, but it stuck with me, okay? And I've said many times, I think this is Paul's personal statement of who he was and what he did. Okay, there's a whole lot of them out there, and you'll all have disagreements, but this is mine. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Oh, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection to share in his suffering and become like him in his death. Now, it's a slight paraphrase, gets the gist of the point. What's the point? The coal of the Christian... By the way, I heard that... I heard that verse just like that, the very first sermon I ever heard as a believer. That was it. It was in the sermon. The very first sermon. That's how long I have had that verse on my tongue. Because I think it's fundamental to the Christian life. Oh, that I might know Him and the power of His resurrection, what He has done for me, that I might share in His sufferings and become like him in his death. In all that he accomplished in his death, I become like him. That's what the Spirit of God is doing. The Spirit of God has one myopic goal for you as a believer. To transform you into the image of the Son of God. He's not going to deify you, okay? Let's not get that wrong, okay? He's not going to turn you into Christ. But he's going to turn you into holy, obedient, submissive, all the things that Jesus was that made him our Redeemer. That's what Christ, that's what the Spirit of God is doing for us. That's the goal. 
There's nothing less than that. Which is, which is why it is so absurd when so many churches are so focused on the me, me, me and what I get out of life because it's like, you're settling for that? That's what you want to settle for? I've always thought that Joel Osteen's book is ironically titled Your Best Life Now. It might be. Because if you're not converted into the image of Christ, if you're not transformed into the image of Christ, you ain't coming anywhere near him. So the Holy Spirit is the one who does this transforming believers, okay? We teach that the Holy Spirit is the supernatural and sovereign agent in regeneration. And the way we write that is to say this. There is an ordo salutis. That's a Latin phrase meaning order in salvation. There is an order in the way that things are done. And we believe that no one, absolutely no one, comes to faith in Christ without the work of the Spirit accomplishing a work in them first. The first actions of the Spirit of God are necessary for any man, anywhere, to come to faith in Christ. Period. Okay? The idea that we are just simple neutral moral creatures that can embrace Christ or dismiss him, whatever, and nothing God has to do nothing in order for us to be saved is poppycock. It's, it's not scriptural in the least. The Holy Spirit of God must act in the heart of a rebellious sinner, and the Spirit of God is the one who is the supernatural and sovereign agent in regeneration. Meaning... He don't answer to no one in terms of who he saves. And he does so however he wants. Supernaturally. Jesus himself said, you don't even know where the wind blows, Nicodemus. It goes this way, it goes that way. You have no idea. But you must be born again. The Spirit of God blows where he wills. He works in the heart of people as he wills. And, and, And it's... Just as your fingerprints are unique, I suspect that the work of the Spirit of God in you to raise you from the dead is unique to you. No one else can really duplicate it. Because your circumstances are different, first of all. But the Spirit of God does a sovereign, supernatural work in the lives of the elect, and he brings them to regeneration. You must be regenerated. You must be born again. You must have the old heart taken out and a new heart put in. You must be, as Paul says, a new creature in Christ. You must have a second birth. You must be born again a second time. It is a birth that creates a new nature in you. And not only is the Holy Spirit the supernatural and sovereign agent in regeneration, but he baptizes all believers into the body of Christ upon salvation. Now, you know why we wrote that, don't you? I mean, I didn't write this, but somebody did. But you know why it's written? Because there are some who believe that the coming of the Spirit comes later, after you trust in Christ and are saved. And there are whole swaths of Christianity who teach a second baptism in the Spirit, where the super-Christians step out and the Spirit comes on them differently than he comes on just the ordinary Christian along the way. And there have been whole swaths of Christianity which talk about this second baptism. And they, they pull some acontextual passages out to try to make their point. No. 
If the Spirit of God must do a work to raise any man from the dead and bring him to faith in Christ, then any man raised from the dead and brought to faith in Christ has been born of the Spirit. He has been baptized by the Spirit. He has been indwelt by the Spirit of God. Now, let me also talk about this indwelling thing. The Spirit of God doesn't just go and rent a room in your heart. Okay? It's kind of the idea that many evangelicals, yeah, I got the Spirit in my heart. Yeah, the Spirit of God. Although most Christians say, I got Jesus in my heart. How exactly does that work? But anyways, the Spirit of God, he rents a room. He's there. Mm -mm. That's not the regenerating power of the Spirit of God. I am convinced of this, that the Spirit of the living God who takes out the heart of stone doesn't just occupy the new heart. He occupies every aspect of the Imago Dei in you. Every single part of who you are as a human being, unique, created in the image of God. He, he occupies your mind. He occupies your heart. He occupies your will. He occupies your emotions. He occupies your language and speech. He occupies your creativity. He occupies your imagination, your conscience, your morality, your ethics, and on and on and on it goes. Of all the things that, the, that God breathed into you to make you unique from the animal kingdom, the Spirit of God invades every part of it when He makes you a new creature because He's transforming every part of it. There's no part of you that the Spirit of God is going, yeah, I'm going to invade this one, but I'm kind of leave that whole tongue thing to himself. Just talk the way you want. No. If the Spirit of God is transforming us, then he's transforming how we think. He's transforming how we feel. He's transforming how we act. He's transforming how we speak. He's transforming how we imagine and what our conscience looks like and what our morality is. All of it is the indwelling power of the Spirit of God. He doesn't just take a room. He invades every part of us. And that's, the, that's good news. That's terribly good news. Because the Spirit of God is living in us as believers, and He is helping us. He is transforming every aspect of us. I mean, I don't want to stand before Christ the King someday, and the Spirit of God left some aspect of me, you know, didn't bother to work on that, and I've got to go stand before Christ and go... I still got a problem right here. I don't want to do that. I want that transformed. I want everything about me transformed. That's what the Spirit of God does. He comes and he baptizes all believers into the body of Christ upon salvation. But the other way that that could be said, or the other interpretation of that, is that the Spirit of God baptizes all believers into the body of Christ. What draws Christians together it's not their common personalities. Right? Right? Because there's some of you in here who go, I really hate his personality. I like his preaching, but I hate his personality. Okay. <laughs> we don't all share the same way of thinking, do we? We have different outlooks on life. We, we've had different circumstances. We've had different upbringings. We, we're in different social classes and, and economic classes. All these But what draws us together? What knits together a group of people? Is it just some common interest that we have? What draws us together is the Spirit of God who indwells us. And he sees himself in other followers of Christ. And they are drawn together. The church is not a homogenous unit because we as elders go around figuring out how to make sure that everybody's in tune with everybody else. It doesn't do it. That very first sermon that I heard, 
As a preacher, you've heard this before. I'm sorry. There's always new people, though. They've not heard it. Very first sermon I heard, I heard this illustration. You'll appreciate this one, Laura. Lori, sorry. How do you tune a dozen pianos in a circle? Well, one way would be to tune the first piano to a tuning fork and then tune the second piano to the first and the third to the second and the fourth to the third all the way around the circle. But let me ask you a question. When you get to the twelfth, Lori, is the twelfth one still going to be in tune with the first? Not even close. And that's how many churches think about tuning the church, right? Well, let's make sure that Laura is okay with, uh, with Carol, and Carol's okay with Lynette, and Lynette's okay with Celia, and then let's make sure that Kenny and, and Luke have a relationship, and let's make sure that Roger and Les aren't on the outs like they typically are. Let's, let's fix all these things. Let's put all these things together and fix it, right? Does it work? No. How do you fix it? What's the proper way of tuning a dozen pianos in a circle? You tune the first piano to the central tuning fork. You tune the second to the same tuning fork. And the third and the fourth, all the pianos to the fork in the center. And guess what happens? They all become in tune with each other. That's what the Spirit of God does in the church. He comes and becomes the central tuning fork of the church. He becomes the instrument at the middle of the church that causes all of us to love one another and care for one another and then all focus ourselves on Christ turning our attention away from ourselves and even each other to Christ. When you word it like that, it blows your mind. I know you've been there all the time. Being raised in something so different and the whole can't lose my salvation. Mm-hmm. You can't, you know. I don't have to leave there for him. He didn't leave me. I didn't leave him. No. There was no, no, no. Yeah, none of that language. This whole rededicating your life and being rebaptized and making another confession of faith, all of that springs out of a theology which says that the Spirit of God, eh, he kind of gets the job done, but not really. Uh uh-uh. uh. No, the Spirit of God says, that one is mine. And it takes the crap off of me. Of course it does. There's nothing I could do or could have done. Right. Right. Exactly. Excellent point. So he. he he indwells, he sanctifies, he instructs, he empowers us for service, and he seals us into the day of redemption. All right. He indwells. All right, I got that one, right? You got that? He indwells. You got it? All right. But he also sanctifies. What does the word sanctify mean? Set apart. What are the two words in the New Testament that are synonyms of sanctify? Nope. Holy and... What's the other word that's a synonym for sanctified? Holy and... Saint. Bet you didn't know that, did you? Saint is a synonym for sanctified, which is a synonym for holy. You kind of get the impression, don't you, from the use of the words by the New Testament writers that they thought holiness was kind of an important thing because that's what we are. It's the Spirit of God who sanctifies. It's the Spirit of God to produce holiness in you. Thomas Jefferson may have gotten it right about a nation pursuing holiness, but that ain't the pursuit of the Christian in the church. Happiness is not... The goal. What is the goal? Holiness is the goal. The Spirit of God sanctifies us. He separates, He sets us apart. And what does He set us apart from? He sets us apart from sin. But let me also suggest to you, He also sets you apart from what you were. 
such, Paul says, such were some of you. And he gives a list of the kinds of things that you used to be. whole list of things like fornicators and sexually immoral and emasculate or homosexual. The list goes on and on of things. He says, this is what you were. And the Spirit of God says, you're not that anymore. I'm setting you apart from that. I am making it clear to you that you are none of those things anymore. Which is why it grinds my teeth when you have people say, well, I'm a homosexual Christian. That violates the entirety of the work of the Spirit of God. There is no such thing as an identity of sin in the life of the Christian. That's what you used to be. It's not what you are anymore. Stop using that to identify yourself. He sanctifies us. He instructs us. Okay, the Spirit of God is the one who takes the Word of God and instructs us. He's the one that opens our minds to understand the deeper things of Christ. And listen, another bit of news for you. He ain't interested in your 8th grade vacation Bible study level theology. Okay? Not interested in that. No. The Spirit of the living God wants you to teach you deep things. Which is why I don't apologize for using big words like justification and propitiation and sanctification and those kinds of words. I don't apologize for using words like ontology. (laughs) Because the Spirit of God is not interested in you sitting there marinating in your 8th grade theology. He wants you to grow up, to mature, to understand the deeper things of Christ. The Word of God can never fully be understood. And so, therefore, there's always more to learn. There's always, every time you open the Bible, you should see something new out of it. Every single time you open the Bible, you should see something new. You should see something new. Because the Word of God is powerful. It's living. Sharper than a double-edged sword. And who is making that thing come alive? The Spirit of the living God. He teaches. He sanctifies. He instructs. He empowers for service. I'm going to come back to that thought when we get down a paragraph or two, but let me just say as a preview, because I'm probably not going to get to that last paragraph. When When we say that he empowers for service, what we mean by that is that the Spirit of God takes your abilities and uses them for the advancement of the cause of Christ in the world. Okay. Now, sometimes the Spirit of God will gift in unique sort of ways to accomplish that. But very often, the Spirit of God, the infinite, omniscient, omnipotent Spirit of God, (coughs) is capable of taking just your ordinary abilities and turning them into the kind of thing that can turn the world over for Christ. It doesn't have to be some magical, romantic, spiritual gift that he gives to us. What's your spiritual gift? Oh, I took that spiritual gift years ago. and Okay, I took that inventory years ago, and, and I'm, I'm an exhorter. Well, good for you. Get away from me. I don't, want to, you know, I don't want your spiritual gift anywhere near me, okay? Spiritual gifts are not just something that the Spirit of God drops on you when you are converted and says, now go use this. Spiritual gifts are given by the Spirit of God as He wills in the course of your life to accomplish what He wills to accomplish in the circumstances that you have. I'm going to share a little secret with you. I'm not a very empathetic person. I'm not even very sympathetic. Okay? It's just the way the Lord made me. I think he did that on purpose because as a preacher, sometimes you can't be empathetic. You have to stand up and speak truth into situations where you can't be bought by the emotion of the moment, right? You agree with that? Okay. So I'm not a very empathetic person. So you know what I got to do when I'm preaching a funeral? 
I've got to ask the Lord to give me what it takes for me to find that empathy for that family that's grieving, to be able to sit with that to sit with that widow or to sit with that mom who's lost that child, to speak to her in a way that brings the word of God in comfort to her. I've got to find that empathy. It ain't natural to me. I've got to let the spirit of God bring it to me. And I, I can tell you this, he does every time, every time. Because the spirit of God blows where he wills. He will use his power through you in whatever situation that he has placed you in. So that's why I don't like the spiritual gifts inventories. I think they're limiting. I think they say to people, I'm locked into this one. And I've, and I've noticed, too, how few people actually have the gift of giving. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed how few people have that gift? It just doesn't come. I just don't know why. Okay? Because they're false. They're faulty mechanisms of assessing human personality. Much like the Myers-Briggs test, which I've taken four times and have aced every time, the fact is, is that it doesn't actually tell anybody who you are. The Spirit of God does what He wills. So He empowers us for service as He wills. And then He seals us unto the day of redemption. Now, I don't want you to miss that. That's a biggie. Paul speaks of this in Romans 8. He's, it, it's spoken of um, in Romans 8, 2 Corinthians 3, Ephesians 1. To be sealed means to be set and fixed, okay? When an emperor sent an edict, he would seal that edict. They would, they would put some wax on the fold, and they would press the signet into the wax to say, this is sealed. They, that's what they did to the, or tried to do to the tomb that Jesus was in. They tried to seal it so that it would be fixed, though it can't be changed, okay? So the word seal, in this case, is to fix something to fix it in such a way that it is set and it cannot be moved. And that's what the Spirit of God does. By His power in us, we are sealed unto the day of redemption. How does Christ recognize His own? He sees His Spirit in them. He recognizes His Spirit in them. He sees them. Now, of course, Christ being the omniscient one also knows every name written in the Lamb's book of life and he knows all that he went to the cross for, etc. But, but let's not forget that in time and space, as we are walking around on this planet, he seals us by coming to us, raising us from the dead and indwelling us to make us such that there is no possibility that we can be lost because the Spirit of God will never abandon those he has raised from the dead. He cannot. He cannot. Why not? Why not? Why can't he, why can't he abandon them? What's that? Well, that's one reason. But he could go away. I mean, he did with Saul. Right? So why doesn't he? Because the only ones he raises from the dead are those who have been given to the Son by the Father. And therefore, he knows them. The Spirit of God doesn't just go pick some random guy off the street and go, okay, this one I'm going to raise from the dead and see what happens. Oops, I picked the wrong one. I guess I'll take off. See ya. Bye, pal. No. He cannot leave. He cannot leave those that he's regenerated. He cannot walk away from them because he has raised and indwelt those who belong to the Son. 
Who's he pointing us to? He's pointing us to the Son. If he's pointing us to the Son, if that's his entire purpose, he cannot walk away from those that the Son has sent him to find. That's, again, all of that makes no sense to the synergist. Okay? None of that makes any sense to the synergist whatsoever. Because the synergist doesn't start with the work of the Spirit in salvation. He starts with just a moral neutral creature making a decision for Christ, and then the Spirit comes along afterwards and makes him born again, whatever that means. Never been defined, by the way, by any synergist I've ever met. No. The Spirit of God has come explicitly into the life of the elect person, raised him from the dead, given him faith and repentance, turned him to Christ, called him to exercise that faith in Christ, indwelt every aspect of him because that individual belongs to Christ. Therefore, he cannot abandon such a person. It's incongruous. So, if the Spirit of God has raised you from the dead, and you find yourself, once again, committing a sin, and then asking yourself, hmm, I wonder if God really loves me. You have missed the point of the work of the Spirit. You've missed it. You've missed understanding what it is. Go back and stick your nose in these passages and read what it is that the Spirit of God does. He seals us under the day of redemption. He puts us in a place where we cannot be broken. We cannot be broken away from Christ. And I think that's what Jesus means when he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will lose nothing. Why? Because he's going to send the agent of his own salvation into their lives, and that agent is going to make them his. Period. End of sentence. Period. End of sentence. In reform circles, there's no discussion at all about the idea of losing your salvation. It doesn't make sense. It's absolutely incongruous with the whole of the work of the Spirit to begin the work of salvation and to end it. Because remember, it says something about the effect of he who began a good work in you will see it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. And who is the he? The Spirit of the living God. He seals them unto the day of redemption. So that's, okay, our opening salvo of the nature of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. And I hope, if nothing else, I hope that over the last hour, I have, if nothing else, I've opened your eyes to the fact that the Spirit of God is more profound than we typically give him credit for, that we typically understand him. I hope that you kind of step back and go, whoa, yeah, 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 right. I've been thinking kind of like the Spirit is being, ah, somewhere out there. No, he's busy. He's doing a great work amongst us, turning our lives to Christ and our attention to Christ. And if all of that is true, then he is worthy of our worship and our praise, right? And we worship him just as we worship the Father and just as we worship the Son. We worship the Spirit. Any questions you'd like to throw out? Make it quick, please. Yes. I'm sorry. Propitiation? Why? Well, I'm just I'm just using the word as an example. Right. But there's a whole lot of evangelicals that have no idea what the word means. Um, I'm, I hope not. No, I'm just using it as an example of a big word that is 
misunderstood amongst evangelicals, or better, not even understood at all. Okay, you know, propitiation. Propitiation is the work of God, the work of Christ to avert the wrath of God, to take upon himself the wrath of God. It's a biblical word. It's found in the text. So, uh, but most Christians don't know this word. They have never heard it. So if the Spirit of God is teaching us, then he should teach us what propitiation is. He should teach us what atonement is. He should teach us what reconciliation is. He teaches us all of these concepts. So I'm not minimizing the content. I'm just throwing the word out as an example of things Evangelicals are like, I have no idea what that is. That's unfortunate. The, the, the NIV used the phrase sacrifice of atonement there rather than propitiation, and they missed it by a wide shot. So more better translations, more formal translations have put the word propitiation back in that verse. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we believe, we believe in, in, in these words, not because they're just words, but because they have deep meanings behind them. They're biblical words that have context and meaning and value to us, and the Spirit of God comes along and says, let's talk about propitiation. Do you really know what Christ did when he took your wrath? Okay, 